EU Confidential will get underway in just a moment after a message from our partner, Grow with Google. Our Army Skills started our first aid business, but we found we are lacking the skills to grow it. Grow with Google's program in Denmark gave us a digital mindset. In less than a year, we went from teaching 360 people first aid to 3,200. Now we employ 30 former Army staff. We are Mark and Anders of first aid in Denmark. Two of the 725,000 Europeans so far who found a job or grown their business with Google's help. By 2020, we will support one million more. Grow with Google. To find out more, search new skills, new opportunities. Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, the political editor of Politico Europe, and I'm speaking to you this week from Politico's newsroom in Washington, D.C., where Emmanuel Macron visited for the first state visit of the Trump era. Our main guest this week is Spencer Dale. He's the former chief economist at the Bank of England, who now holds the same position at energy giant BP. He reads us the global energy landscape and has both good and bad news for the EU. Our regular panelists, Lena Abarus and Alva Finn, join me to discuss Britain's migration bungles, the political theatre of dandruff, and a heartwarming story from Australia. And for once, we've also got a positive Dear Politico dilemma. Before we turn to our guests, let's reflect on Emmanuel Macron's state visit. Was it defined by a bromance or by a battle for the future of the West? The jury, frankly, is still out. Macron delivered DC some of the sorely lacking pomp and ceremony that this town came to love under President Obama. And as far as Europe goes, that was a role that used to be played by Britain. Germany wanted it, of course, but it was Macron, representing France, who took it. Now, Macron and Trump share more similarities than they may care to admit. Both are maverick insider-outsiders. They share a dislike for media, but a love of limelight. And both lead powerful but divided nations. And each is struggling with their ratings. Is any of that enough to bring them together on policy? Trump hates the Iran nuclear deal. And Macron is desperate to save it. Trump hates the Paris climate deal. Macron is its custodian. And how bizarre is it that when it comes to a battle for the future of the West, liberals are stuck with France as their champion? As that dynamic unfolds, it's also time to mark the 10th anniversary of European financial and later economic crisis. The European Commission's banking vice president, Valdis Dombrovskis, took time this week to tell a New York audience that it's time for more transatlantic leadership to ensure a rules-based global order and a global level playing field. He says, quote, what we need is not less globalization, but more fairness. Sounds great, but who's going to do it? Britain is bouncing between being global Britain and little Britain. President Trump is slowly suffocating the World Trade Organization, and the EU is about to enter its pre-election lame duck phase. There really is a battle for the future of the West going on, and it's going to go for a while yet, I'm afraid. Now to our guests. Spencer Dale, chief economist at BP, spoke with Politico news editor Andrew Gray in Brussels this week. And to set up the interview, Andrew also spoke to Politico energy reporter Kalina Aroshikov. Thanks, Ryan. Joining me now is Kalina Arashokov, one of our energy reporters here at Politico. Thanks for coming in, Kalina. Thank you, Andrew. Um, So let's start with a big picture when we're talking about energy policy. What are the EU's main goals when it comes to energy policy and what are their main policies for trying to achieve them? Well, broadly speaking, um, the EU has set itself a goal to achieve a certain amount of emissions reductions by 2030. So in the EU's energy policy, they always think in terms of decades. So we have targets for 2030, which is something that negotiators from the various 
EU institutions are discussing about. And then the whole idea is that you prepare the ground for the next decades to come to meet the goals of the Paris Climate Agreement, which was struck in Paris in 2015 and has the ultimate aim of reducing global warming or the rise of temperatures to below two degrees and ideally to 1.5 degrees. Okay, and what are the main ways that they think Europe can do that, can get there? What are the policies they're trying to implement to make that happen? Well, the EU's approach is a multifaceted one. That they say there is one way is setting targets for specific energy technologies. So the EU has a target for renewable energy and the EU has a target for energy efficiency. How big that target is is currently under discussion and is a big political fight between the various EU countries. But that is essentially one of the political strands the EU is pursuing to reach its goal of lower emissions. Another major policy tool is the emissions trading system. It's the carbon market. It is the world's biggest carbon market, unless you consider China, which has launched its carbon market this year. Mm -hmm. And the idea there is that you put a price on carbon and make it more expensive for companies to emit. And by that, make companies change their ways. So choose new fuels to power the industrial production or choose different energy sources to produce. And what's the verdict on that system so far? I mean, I'm sure it depends who you talk to. Is it working? Is it helping reduce emissions? Well, the European Commission, of course, says it's working. And we've just finished, at the end of last year, we finished a long reform of the scheme to make it work next decade. Because, as you said, many say it doesn't work. I mean, there's been much criticism of the system that the price of carbon is too low that it doesn't incentivize that shift to cleaner energy technologies and in that sense has, face, has failed in its purpose. So now there's a reform to, that was agreed to essentially boost the price and make the system more effective. And if you look at carbon prices over the last weeks, they've grown and grown and grown. I mean, they used to be around four, five, six euros, so very low. And by now we've had some highlights in the last weeks where they went as high as 14 euros which okay. is, of course, quite a considerable increase. However, that doesn't mean it's enough mm. to really make that shift. Um, many experts say it actually needs prices between 20 and 30 euros to really incentivize companies to change course. Okay, and in our main uh, interview, which we'll hear in a moment with Spencer Dale, the chief economist of BP, he talks about carbon capture technology and he's encouraging the EU to spend more on that. And he seems very bullish about it. Is that optimism um, generally shared in terms of the technology that this can actually work on a large scale? There are many critics of carbon capture and storage for various reasons. It's so far economically not viable, at least as a standalone technological solution. So the calls of someone like Spencer Dale to pour more money into it um, are shared by those that believe that all technological solutions to essentially reduce emissions should be pursued. That, of course, has others up in arms that would like to promote renewables and certain energy technologies above all, because they say if you manage a technology such as carbon capture and storage in a way that would make it possible to continue burning fossil fuels. So a company like BP, of course, whose business is based on gas and oil, um, sees a lot of value in that because you don't attack or target the, the fuel, mm -hmm. but you come up with a solution that would make it possible to burn the fuel in the future while making it environmentally friendly in a way. Mm -hmm. But is that okay? Is it okay to keep burning the fuel if we find a way to reduce the emissions from it dramatically? Well, I think that's an ideological point of view. I mean, there's some people who say you should pursue and do everything to 
achieve the ultimate aim, what is the ultimate aim in the broader context of the Paris Climate Agreement, is to reduce emissions. So many or some would say, do everything that you can, absorb carbon from the atmosphere, absorb it from production, make fuels clean. While others would say, well, no, it's not about just reaching lower emissions, it's about changing the whole way we produce and use energy, which means getting rid of fossil fuels altogether and focusing entirely on, on what they say are clean and, and renewable energy sources. Mm. And that's the eternal discussion I think we have in the EU as well. Mm. You have those that say the ultimate end should be what was driving policy and others that say policy should drive certain choices. I think we've had examples where that wasn't always the best solution if we think about the diesel crisis. Mm. What about shale gas? Is another thing that comes up in the interview. Again, Spencer Dale is very bullish about it, talks about the shale gas revolution. Where does the EU stand on shale gas? Does it have a, a policy? Is it broadly in favour or is it not really a factor? Shale gas in, in, in Europe is no factor and essentially the policy is no shale gas, especially no fracking, which is considered environmentally harmful. I think why someone like Spencer Dale raises shale gas and shale um, oil is because of the changes the shale has made in the in the North American energy markets, which is a very different story to that in, in Europe. So I think in terms of the European discussion on shale gas, that's that's a exhausted one. But isn't it the case that it does mean that the US becomes an exporter, so becomes a kind of alternative provider to, to Europe of gas in particular, which could reduce dependency on Russia? Well, that's what many hope. Ideally, you have as many import sources as possible. I think that's part of... That's what should be part of any energy policy to make sure that you're not dependent on one supplier. And I think that's part of why the idea of U.S. liquefied natural gas or gas exports is a prominent and popular one, especially in certain Eastern and Central European markets, which have traditionally been very dependent on Russia and have suffered as a consequence of that dependence. And of course, the more competition, the lower the prices because you have leverage in price negotiations. And I would argue certainly with a energy suppliers such as Russia, it's always good to have leverage because everyone responds to to force. Mm -hmm. Okay, Kalina, thanks for coming in. Thank you. And uh, now let's hear our interview with Spencer Dale, the chief economist of BP. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks very much for coming in so early. And you're here in Brussels to present the BP Energy Outlook. Can you just tell us a bit about what that is? It's something BP does once a year. It's looking at the sort of the broad trends shaping global energy markets over the next 25 years out to 2040. And the key reason why we produce that document every year is to help our own internal decision making, help um, us set the strategy um, for the company. But then we share it with the rest of the world. And I think one of the key reasons why we share it with the rest of the world is it's a great way of avoiding groupthink. I think one of the biggest dangers if you're a company or any organisation is you sit around a table and you all furiously agree with each other. If you stand up around the world saying, this is what I think is going to happen, guess what? People love telling you why you're wrong. And as a result, you come away smarter. Why do you come to Brussels to present it? What's the thinking behind that? Because Europe is a major part of the energy system. Europe has been at the cutting edge in terms of leading the world in terms of the transition to a lower carbon energy system. So it's a major player. It's a major player in terms of renewables, in terms of leading that transition to a lower carbon energy system. 
I think the role that Europe plays in terms of importing gas from Russia is another key part of the global energy system. So Europe's sort of central to a number of the key themes. And so you come here to learn, to speak to the experts and check your thinking. You'd mentioned in the outlook, you talk about a scenario or, or part of the scenario being the EU leading the transition to a lower carbon economy. How would the EU actually do that? What would they have to do in practice to, to be the leader there? I think they have. They've done some amazing things. I think two things in particular stand out very significantly. One is the EU has led the charge in terms of the penetration of renewable energy, wind and solar power. The importance of wind and solar power plays in the EU power sector is greater than that of any other part of the world. And so understanding that is, is key. I think also the EU has made huge strides in terms of energy efficiency, so using energy more efficiently, producing more with less. In one particular scenario in this year's outlook, we think by 2040 the level of energy consumption of the EU in 2040 is similar, as falls back to the level it was in 1975. So the level of GDP, level of output in, in the EU is about three times greater but the level of, out, level of energy consumption the same. So you can produce three times as much of the same level of output. So astonishing improvements in energy efficiency. But I think there's still challenges. I think one particular sort of feature of some parts of the EU power sector is there's still a significant role played by coal. It seems somewhat odd that you push renewables so significantly into the power sector, but coal, the dirtiest form of energy, is still playing a role. I likened it yesterday to somebody having a diet and they have a lovely salad and feeling very virtuous, but then they have a bowl of ice cream um, at the end of it. And so I think an issue for the EU going forward is, is trying to think about how to reduce the importance uh, of coal in the power sector and replacing that partly with renewables, but also with a greater role for natural gas as well. In terms of what the EU or, or, or what other kind of major policymakers need to be doing to get to that scenario, you know, what are the tools that they could make more use of? I mean, obviously we know about emissions trading. Um, you know, do there need to be some changes there? I think emissions trading, carbon prices are absolutely key here, particularly in that power sector. So related to that story, I was just telling about trying to shift, encourage a shift away from coal into cleaner, lower carbon fuels, natural gas and renewables. Carbon pricing via a carbon price via a, a trading system can play a, a very significant role. Relatively small shifts in carbon prices. If that carbon price of a year or so ago it was sort of five, six dollars, it's sort of stretching up to twelve, thirteen dollars today. If it got up to twenty, twenty-five dollars, that shift in relative prices could lead to a very significant move away from coal into natural gas, into renewables, and that has a very significant impact in terms of carbon emissions. The, the way the sort of the ETS system works, it's not that they set the price, but rather you reduce the amount of permits and allowances, and by reducing the amount of effective amount of permits and allowances, that causes the price to, to rise sort of naturally on its own. Mm. Now that scenario also talks about the EU leading a transition to a lower carbon economy. I mean, that begs the question, would others follow? There's a sort of good news and a bad news component to that. The good news is many countries around the world are following. I was in China recently and in China making enormous strides to move away from coal, growing extraordinary rapid growth in renewable energy, nuclear energy, natural gas. America, and people will often think of America and the recent decision by the administration to pull out of the climate change agreement, but 
in terms of on the, what's on the, happening on the ground, the growth of shale gas in America, this plentiful supplies of cheap gas, are doing very significant good in terms of driving out coal and, and increasing the role of natural gas. So the good news is around the world you're seeing significant progress being made. The bad news is that pace of that progress around the world is not good enough to achieve the goals set out in Paris. And so a, a central message in our energy outlook is the path we think we're sort of moving along at the moment is not a path consistent to achieving those goals that we saw everybody celebrating in Paris a couple of years ago. So we need a more decisive break than we think we're seeing at the moment. What would be the other main things that policymakers can do apart from the carbon pricing? Are there any other sort of tools in the toolbox that they're not using at the moment? I think the other area where we're just not seeing anywhere near as much development as we would hope to see is something called carbon capture and storage. So the idea here, what the, the intuition of this is you capture those carbon emissions as they're emitted and you store them safely underground. And this technology exists, it's proven technology, but at the moment the price incentives are such that you're just getting significant underinvestment in carbon capture and storage. And why is that? Because Is it partly because people have scepticism about the technology? Because you sometimes hear right, that people just are not convinced this can work on a, on a big enough scale or can be done. I, my truthful answer is I, I don't know. I think that sort of scepticism about the technology is not well founded. This does work, there are projects up and running. I worry, in part, it's perhaps a little bit less exciting than supporting renewable solar and wind projects, helping large energy companies capture carbon emissions from power stations may sound a little less politically exciting than other things, but I I don't know. Energy, well, forever, but certainly in recent decades, heavily intertwined with geopolitics, you know, is given certain regions of the world and certain countries huge strategic importance. Do you see that continuing as you look at the various scenarios? Or as we become more invested in renewable technologies, does that kind of dependence on, on other countries, other regions reduce? I think the interaction between energy and geopolitics has been there for, you know, for many, many decades and, will, and it will continue to be so. Uh, a key issue here for Europe is that over the roughly today Europe as a whole imports about 50% of the natural gas it consumes. Over the next 25 years the natural gas it produces domestically within the region is likely to decline and so that share may increase to about 75% of the gas that the Europe um, as a whole imports. An interesting question there is how much of that continues to come from pipelines from Russia and how much instead comes from so-called liquefied natural gas, LNG, exports from the rest of the world, from the US but from all other parts of the world. And what's an interesting issue here is how sort of technology may affect the nature of some of those geopolitics. Up till now, I think most people here in Brussels would say, well, the, the gas we can get from Russia is very competitively priced, but our nervousness is the energy security aspects of that, being too dependent on one country. Well, the creation of LNG, liquefied natural gas, has create, is creating a global market for gas. Once there's a global market for gas, some of those energy security issues become less of a worry because you can import your gas from Russia in the knowledge that were anything to happen to those gas flows, there's now a global market for gas that you can go to, just like there's a global market for oil. So my instinct is the development of LNG means some of those energy security issues become less pressing 
going forward. And who rises in, in importance as a result of the rise of LNG? I mean, who becomes perhaps more of a, a power player than we've been used to? So in some sense, what's fascinating about energy is the sort of the nature of global energy flows are shifting. So when I went to school, I thought about energy moving from east to west. So oil, if you like, being produced in the Middle East, flowing to Europe and the US to drive and power those economies. But increasingly, we are seeing instead energy flow from west to east. If you think about where the biggest growth of energy over the last few years has been, it's the US in terms of the shale revolution in both oil and gas. Where's the biggest growth markets for energy? It's increasingly India and China. So the whole nature of those capital or energy flows flowing one way, capital flows flowing the other way, have switched. And so who's rising in importance here? I think it's America was a very large net energy importer. It's still importing energy in net terms, but far less so. And so instead, the big importers of energy, increasingly China uh, in India, and America gaining in importance, Russia in terms of its exports of oil and gas, and also countries like Qatar, which has a huge gas reserves, also a significant player. I mean, just in, the, in its most basic terms, you know, energy security, I guess the thing that people worry about is, you know, the lights going out or simply just not having the energy to be able to, you know, to power the economies that we need. I mean, is that kind of nightmare scenario a realistic possibility? Much of the last 20, 30 years, when you and I went to school, there was a story about scarcity, that we we're going to run out of oil, we we're going to run out of gas. And in that world, energy security, will we have enough energy to keep the lights on? That's gone. Technology means that we keep finding more oil, we keep finding more gas, we get better at using that oil and gas more efficiently. Remember that story I told you uh, before, the level of energy demand in Europe falling back to the same level it was in 1975, even though GDP is three times greater. So we're never going to run out of oil, we're never going to run out of gas. And for a region like the EU, which is a major importer of oil and a major importer of gas, that's good news because that means you can have more confidence about growing your economy and worry less about sort of pure energy security issues because there will always be flows of oil and there will always be flows of gas. But at what environmental cost in terms of extracting those uh, resources? I'm sure you're going to tell me we're getting better at that, of doing it in a more environmentally friendly way, but there are obviously people who just worry that we're just, every time we do this, we cause some damage to the environment. And I think that's a very significant concern and a perfectly legitimate concern. I think technology has changed this in, in two dimensions. One is there was a point that we were having to go into harder and harder territories. You had to go deeper and further away in more difficult environments. Technology means much of the, where the biggest growth of oil and gas have been in the last few years has been onshore in, in the US in terms of the shale revolution. And that it's a lot easier to control the environmental issues there than there has been before. I think there are legitimate concerns about how one produces natural gas, an issue I think all oil and gas companies are dealing with at the moment, their so-called methane emissions, emissions of methane gas as you produce gas. I think in BP we are committed to controlling those methane emissions and reducing those methane emissions. So. And it's serious, and I think we should be held to account on that. We've committed to clear targets, and people should hold us to account to make sure we, we hit those um, targets. And just maybe a couple of final questions, if I could go back to your, your previous life. I, I gather the Bank of England is about to start looking for a new governor. What kind of person should they be looking for? I mean, if you were writing the job description apart from a hard worker, what, what's, what are the kind of skills that 
you know, that serve you well in that job? Everything. You need an intellectually curious mind. You need to have that sort of breadth of knowledge to shift right across from monetary policy to financial stability issues. I think you need sort of the skills of an international diplomacy because you need to be dealing with international G7, G20 colleagues as well as all your banking industries and, and your industry, so huge diplomacy skills. And I think perhaps above all, a degree of intellectual curiosity. I mean, I think it goes back a little bit to what we were saying earlier about groupthink. I mean, if you go back to the financial crisis, I think at the roots of that financial crisis was a collective intellectual failure. I was part of the central banking community at the time, so I'm not throwing stones. I was definitely part of that as well. And I think keep challenging receive wisdom, challenging what you think you know. And some of that will be right, but a lot of it will be wrong. And so an intellectual curiosity as well. Do you think that central banking community has learned that lesson? Are they more open now or is there, is there new group think you know, developing? Well, I'm not best placed to do that now. I've, I've moved away from central banking for the last three or four years, so I, I'm not close to it. I, my impression from speaking to sort of old friends and colleagues there is they learned a lot from that financial crisis. If you went through that process, that was a very sort of humbling process. And I think you all recognise that you actually knew an awful lot less than you thought you did. And, and those types of lessons stay with you, I think. Would you like to be the governor, the next governor? Uh, no, no, thank you very much. I'm thoroughly enjoying my life um, at BP. Thank you very much, Spencer Dale. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. That was Andrew Gray talking to BP Spencer Dale. Now it's time to bring in the Brussels Brains Trust. They're actually in Brussels, and I'm sitting here in Politico's buzzing newsroom. Hi, Alva. Hi, Lena. Hi, Ryan. Great to be chatting with you. I am sitting here in Washington, D.C., just as Emmanuel Macron is wrapping up his state visit, the first of the Trump administration. But let's swing it back to the EU for a second with an EU WTF. I am going to dive in with Tad Polanski, a 74-year-old Polish refugee. Now, he served in the British Army. He lived in the UK for 67 years, and he has recently been refused a UK passport. That comes on the back of what we've been referring to as the Windrush scandal, which is those uh, immigrants from the Caribbean who have lived in the UK for decades. And they have recently, um, many of them, been served with papers demanding they prove their immigration status. And some of them have been told it's time to leave if they can't prove it even though the UK has actually, the UK Home Office is actually the one responsible for destroying some of that proof. What do you reckon? Is the UK Home Office cruel? Is it incompetent? Both? How can we explain this? I previously used to work in the London office of the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. And in my experience, I think that it is that the UK Home Office has an incredibly aggressive migration policy. It has done so for a while. We know that this migration policy was at the centre of the Vote Leave campaign. I think it's a little bit of both. They really want to get rid of people <laughs> who, who they don't see as belonging to the UK. And also I wanted to kind of follow that up because we know that they actually wrote, I think, to the, the European Parliament to say, don't worry about the Rindrush scandal. We will treat European citizens who live in the UK okay. Uh, well after Brexit happens. So yeah, I think it also people are watching this from Brussels thinking, oh my God, is this how they're going to treat um, European citizens in the future? And rightly so, because this migration policy is very aggressive. 
definitely matches my experience of the home office and those of my friends. I used to live in the UK, so I've dealt with them before. Lena, what's your take on the whole situation? Look, historically as well, the UK has uh, granted the citizenship to many other uh, nationalities worldwide. It's a country that uh, colonized almost uh, the globe, and I think they have done enough on that. Now, circumstances are changing. A lot of refugee crisis, lots of migration crisis, and unfortunately, these new measures, which are very inhuman, harsh measures, are being applied on people who have served and uh, contributed to the economy, to the social well-being of UK. And I'm sure they have paid their their contributions to the system and to the government. Uh, Is it something worrying? Is it something that we have just to worry about the UK? No, I think it is something going to happen. And it's happening, I'm sure, in other parts of Europe, given the migration crisis. And uh, I think every country should have the right to do what's best for its people as well. We've also got the situation where there will be British citizens in 27 European countries. And while the problem to some extent in the UK is the numbers that they have to deal with, like they really deal with more immigrants than perhaps anyone except Germany in that crisis moment in 2015 and 2016, I wouldn't be 100% certain that all of the other European immigration systems are going to know how to handle Brits suddenly turning up to register their presence in the country. But one thing that did surprise me greatly as a kind of backstop to those other dramas we've already mentioned is Amber Rudd was out trying to reassure people. The UK Home Secretary was reassuring different business groups this week. And she was saying, well, look, it's going to be basically as simple as signing up for a store loyalty card. And then it turns out that the registration system won't work on iPhones which is the smartphone that half of the British population uses. (laughs) So, you know, sometimes there are a lot of unforced errors in these home office systems as well. Mm -hmm. Well, let's move on to something a little lighter. I've just been uh, hanging out in in DC on the, the coattails of Donald Trump and Emmanuel Macron. And let me tell you, there isn't one hint in this entire town that Macron is even here. I haven't seen a French flag anywhere in the city for days, which surprised me, given that Trump and Macron seem to be very interested in political theatre and political pageantry. But how about those videos of Trump manhandling Macron and flicking the dandruff off him? And then Macron and him just they just seem to love touching each other. <laughs> I said this earlier that that video of the now infamous dandruff flicking could almost be voiced over by David Attenborough, like, you know, kind of this uh, here are two adult primates in a courtship ritual. It was just buffoonery. And it's something I think we've come to expect from Trump. But still, every single time I see something like this happen, you just realize how unstatesmanlike he is. He really is. And also there was just this underlying tone of trying to kind of demean Macron, but then really kind of just demeaning himself. It was, yeah, quite difficult to watch. Now, Lena, let me throw this at you. Macron seems to be lining himself up as the new Tony Blair. He is to Trump as Blair was to George W. Bush, in my reading anyway. Is that something that rings true with you? Um, Are we talking about looks here, for instance? (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe. They were the the young guns who... Are spending on hairdressers or on, on beauty creams? Maybe, I don't know about that. But certainly, I think 
they are crossing all lines of uh, anything related to leadership, diplomacy, protocol, uh, what we're used to, you know, what a leader should be. So imagine if J.F. Kennedy has uh, saluted or greeted uh, Charles de Gaulle the same way they did, uh, or they did the presser, or they hugged each other, keep kissing each other. It has been taken so much overly by the media that it is terrifying that we are diminishing the content of these talks. They are very important and very strategic, especially when it comes to the Iran deal, to the Paris Agreement. There is a lot that has been discussed. May 12th uh, for the deadline President Trump has given for the Iran deal, if the states will will withdraw or not. Uh, It's just around the corner. So this show was really, I think, part of let's let's cover it up. Let's, Let's entertain and let people talk about it more than talking about the future of these global issues that everyone is spending, how uh, President Macron is going to make this uh, rapprochement between Europe and the US and be really the one who will bring these two continents together, especially on Iran deal and on Syria. Indeed. Well, let's move to a thumbs up. I don't know if you guys have any nominations this week, but I wanted to turn the spotlight close to home here at Politico for a real heartwarming story that one of our reporters and editors has been relaying on Twitter. So for those of you who don't know her, her name's Zoya Sheftalovich, and she edited my Brussels playbook, and she's now a co-author of Florian Eder's Brussels playbook. And her grandfather turned 100 this week, and he has the most extraordinary story. And it's a really beautiful European story as well, where he survived an anti-Semitic pogrom in 1919 in Ukraine. And he was really the only member of his family to do that. They were stabbing at his mother through a haystack, the people who were conducting this pogrom. And he went on to make it to the ripe old age of 100 and receive a a letter from the Queen of England and Australia, Queen Elizabeth, and was having a grand old time this week. And he has gone on to have a beautiful family, including his granddaughter, Zoya, someone who survived the Chernobyl nuclear disaster 30 years ago and and went on to just be a really great human being. And so I don't know if you guys saw that one on Twitter, but I just thought it needed to be mentioned as a hopeful and survival story that can can inspire all of us. You know, juxtaposed to the initial story that we're talking about, about this Polish man who served in the army, you know, like the Queen does and the royal family do such great things around the Commonwealth and citizens who are members of the Commonwealth. And I just really hope that that kind of diplomacy can be extended in the future when we're talking about Brexit. People like like Zoya's grandfather should be celebrated, I think. And that's global Britain, right? Right there, I think. Big EU thumbs up, definitely. And I hope many other European countries can do that for their citizens if we manage to live 100 years, you know, why not? I'm, I'm very hopeful about that. I think it's a kind of a standard thing that you get a, a letter from a head of state when you turn 100. Let's get back into the advice business. We've got a Dear Politico this week, and it's a lovely one. I'm so pleased at this positivity. Dear Politico, I'm a passionate European from Italy. I decided to come and visit the European capital, Brussels, in June, and I would like to visit all places European-related. Do you have any suggestion for places that can breathe a little bit of EU spirit? I know that this kind of question is not really on the theme that you usually answer in the podcast, but it could be nice to take a break from all the problems and give us who live far away some travel ideas to feel more connected to Brussels. Greta Bottomady. 
What's your advice? Yeah, I think you should definitely come and see the European Parliament anyway, then maybe the Parliamentarium and the House of Europe or the museum here that's dedicated to Europe. Another thing that while you're here, I'm quite close. I've been to the University in Maastricht and they have a quite an interesting kind of display around the signing of the Treaty of Maastricht. They're very proud that. And the Treaty of Maastricht, of course, was when the European Union really became the European Union and not just the kind of economic union that it used to be before that. So those are my suggestions. And uh, my suggestion would be like just come to the Schumann area and look at these beautiful buildings. And uh, <laughs> especially you have to go to the European Council and check the new architecture there with I don't know how many millions it costed, but it's really beautiful. It really gives you the power of this amazing continent, how it comes together in one roundabout and everything happens there. Really, it's overwhelming as well as to understand why Europe has evolved and how much Europe sacrificed in order to bring its unity. You need to visit uh, where the the cemetery, it's really... I'm so glad you said that. Yeah, because when I, I went there, I understood what it means to make a union and how much the other parts of the world should be inspired and respect the European Union and its values and for what it stands. Uh, I, I truly advise you to go there. I double thumbs up that, Lena. I was going to say that one of the most Belgian things in the world is to do a day trip on a train. It's a very dense train network here. And going to Ypres, that to me really reminds me that the European Union is a peace project before it is anything else. And as an Australian, that's how I'll always see it, no matter what other directives and regulations get written. And so to see modern Europe and where the problems started so close to each other through a single train journey. That's a really powerful day. And also, I think that the EU actually funded a lot of the things that are in Ypres, like the museum itself. There's a lot of EU funds that are dedicated to the legacy that the European Union has, which is one of peace. And what, if we look back in time, what it used to look like when we weren't all working together. So I just wanted to say that as well. Excellent. Well, Greta, we hope you have a great weekend here in Brussels. Send us some photos Tell us what you got up to and we'll be happy to share it on a future episode of EU Confidential. Thanks, Lena. Thanks, Alva. Thanks for having us, Ryan. It has been a pleasure, as always. That's all we've got time for on this episode of EU Confidential, but we'd love for you to formally join our community. Sign up at no cost by checking the EU Confidential box at politico.eu forward slash registration. You'll get a newsletter with the podcast each week and invites to any podcast-related events. And remember, we'll do better and get bigger if you take a minute to rate us, review us, or subscribe on whatever platform you found us. Finally, but most importantly, podcasting is a team effort. And this week, one of our great team is leaving, producer Michelle Stoddart. She's the one who made that great podcast story a few weeks back about the Brexit angst of Brits in Brussels. There's a tongue twister, but Michelle handled it super. We wish her well, we give her thanks, and we share those thanks with Andrew Gray and Wei Dong Lin for making EU Confidential possible. 